0: with me once again to Mark chapter 4, where we are continuing with part 3 of our series on the parable of the sower. It's Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Today's focus will be in verses 16 and 17, the rocky soil. Before we read God's holy inerrant, and inspired word, let's go to him once again in prayer asking that you would please help us and add his blessing to it. Our Heavenly Father, these are not the words of men. These are the words of God breathed out and written down by your apostles, your teachers, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, that your church may not be without a witness. Not a witness, not just a witness to things that have happened, but also a reminder of what has happened and why we so desperately need it every single day. Father, we need Jesus. We need your spirit no less today than we did when we first believed. So, Father, we would ask that by your grace, through your spirit, that you would add your blessing to your word today, that you would tattoo it upon our hearts and upon our mind, that we might take it with us, and it might ever be before our eyes. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. But hear now the word of God, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea and on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and they devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. Since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it out, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and even a hundredfold. And he said... sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. Then, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it, and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Amen. So since the uh, outbreak of uh, COVID, um, it's kind of taken over the world. Luckily we're kind of on the tail end of it. Um, It's a very odd disease though, isn't it? In 2020, when words are spreading about this kind of virus is just kind of sweeping the world, there was a lot of fear about it. But then when it started to take over, it realized it, it just affected people in very, very different ways. Some people would get deathly sick. Other people would seem to be very not affected by it very much at all. One of the strangest things about the disease, and last I checked, I don't think the medical professionals have quite figured out why this is, but people losing their sense of smell and their sense of taste. Uh, Hillary in our household in, uh, I think, 2021, I think she was probably uh, patient zero. Who came down with it? But she was barely had a sniffle. The only reason that she even knew that she had anything was we went to uh, Bath and Body Works for a gift for somebody where she's trying to smell candles and couldn't smell a thing. I get it in August of 2021, and when I get it, I had a lot more than just the sniffles. I was sick as a dog for about two or three weeks and lost my sense of smell and taste. But like Hillary, she only lost it for uh, it's like a couple of weeks or so i went months without being able to smell or taste anything and as you can tell by looking at me eating is more than just something that i have to do it's kind of a pastime that i have it's the thing that gets me out of bed most mornings i love eating i love things i love food that tastes really good and for several months there couldn't taste a thing we went to um it was our anniversary we went to this really nice restaurant in huntsville uh alabama um, Hillary got steak, I got steak She raved about how it was one of the best steaks she'd ever had in her life All I could tell you about it was that it had salt on it That was it Well, my taste has come back But it's not quite the same Most things haven't been affected But there are certain things that I eat that don't taste today The way they would have in July of 2021 One of those things is milk chocolate uh, Milk chocolate now, I still like it I had a, I had a Rolo this morning um, I like, I like, I still like milk chocolate, but it has a very distinct kind of metallic copper like taste to it. Uh, that's kind of there in the background. It's a very strange thing. Probably the strangest thing is, is, in July of 2021, if you had asked me what is my least favorite food, the thing that I just cannot stomach, it's, was green olives. They disgusted me. Like, gag-inducing. Um, I ate six of them drippers last night. I can't get enough of them. I love them. I, COVID changed me in a deep and meaningful way. <laughs> the Word of God does the same. The Gospel of Jesus Christ has that same effect. It changes us. When I became when I became a Christian, um, a lot of people's testimony is they can't, and I really love this testimony. that I, I can't remember a time. Where they didn't believe on Jesus Christ, they didn't—they didn't, can't remember a time where they didn't know themselves to be a a sinner in need of a savior. I, I really appreciate that. That's not my testimony. I was an atheist while I was in college, and then when I became a Christian, it was kind of a like a light bulb turning on moment. Uh, one night in the shower, and when I woke up the next day, I was a different person. But for everyone like that, I think we might also know somebody who's had an emotional type encounter with the gospel, who seems to have been changed, seem to have been a a new person, a new creation, and then slowly but surely over time, they fall away. Why is, What is going on? These next two soils today, we'll be looking at the rocky ground, and uh, and next week we'll be looking at the, the thorns. Both of these types have in common That at some point, they show all the signs of being a Christian. Members of churches, probably. They partake in the sacrament. They've been baptized. They take the Lord's Supper. They send them to the preaching of the word. And then for one reason or the other, they leave the faith. They exit the kingdom of God. Today, we're looking at the rocky ground. Who will leave specifically because of the threats, or maybe even the presence, tribulations, trials, and persecutions. This morning, I want us to look at this rocky ground, and I want us to look at it in two parts. First of all, I want us to observe the shallowness of faith. What does a shallow faith look like? Faith is planted in the rocky soil, where it can't be dropped down very deep. What is the soil that it is planted in? How is it shallow? And then the second part I want us to look at is the sureness of suffering. Sureness of suffering The shallowness of faith. Let's begin by looking at the shallowness of faith. Let me read for you again verse 16 into about the uh, first half of verse 17. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while. I want us to begin by looking at when it says, and they have no root in themselves. This is to say that it is shallow. The rocky ground have a top layer of good soil. It looks like it, it. looks like it's going to produce something that is good, but underneath it, it's very hard, it's very rocky. This is something that we have uh, in our home in Huntsville, Alabama. We live in what is called limestone counting, and it's called limestone counting because you got a layer of dirt and then just solid rock underneath that dirt. Uh, our neighbors learned that the hard way when they were trying to build their fence and went through several machines or trying to dig down into that stuff. They had to had to break it up first. See, when you try to grow things in that, it becomes difficult. The things that grow in it, because their roots don't go down very deep, particularly if it's something like a tree or something like that, it just, it's not going to last. It's going to fall. For the Christian, if our faith is planted and shallow soil, it will not last. It will not endure the hardships of the Christian life. So what does this shallow soil look like? Where is it? Jesus gives us the answer here, I think, in verse 17. He says that when they receive the word, those who are like the rocky soil, when they receive the word, they receive it with joy. Now, this, this is where I want to draw our attention to here. That word, joy, and I think this this is the answer to the question, what exactly does a shallow faith look like? A faith that is grounded purely in the emotions and in the affections is a shallow faith that will not endure the hardships of the Christian life. Now, before I go any further in this, I want to make, before I make sure that you understand what I'm saying, I want to make sure that you understand what I'm not saying, and, and that you're not misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. He is not saying that the emotions and the affections are bad. These are not evil things. In fact, I think they are crucial, even essential for the Christian life. In fact, one of the ways, so in fact, one of the things that I'm thinking as I am, as I'm preparing a sermon, as I'm writing my sermon out, as I'm making my outlines, as I'm meditating on the text, the thing that I am asking myself is: how can I engage? The affections of those who will be sitting in the pews of Salem Presbyterian Church. Because here's the thing: I don't want to just take information from my notebook and put it into your brain. I don't want to just give you the words. So we just we just have some people take the officers take take some vows, and they just they say "I do," "I do." Well, here's the thing: anybody can say "I do." Anybody can say. Christ is Lord. Anybody can can correctly go through the Apostles' Creed. Just give them a little bit of time to memorize. I don't want you to have a lifeless compl- confession. I want you to have a confession with life. In order to do that, I need more than your intellect. I need more than your mind. I need your heart. R.C. Sproul talks of, talks and speaks in this way when he speaks of his own ministry of teaching. He says, when I teach, I want to teach in a way where I make it clear that I don't just want your mind, I want your heart. I want the seat of your affections. I want every time that you darken the doors of this church to have your affections, your love for God, your love for Christ, your hatred of sin to rise up within you. This is my one of my goals in preaching i want to engage that part of you i want you to have an intimate heartfelt understanding of the god who loves you not after you've gotten your act together not after you've become righteous enough but the god who loves you in your sin while you were still a sinner as you were still as you were still a a thief a liar a gossip, a porn addict, whatever it is, while you were still in sin, he loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son. It's one thing to die for someone that you like. It's one thing to die for a family member, but to die for an enemy. This is the depth of the love of God. I don't want you to just know that. I don't want you to just memorize Romans chapter 5. I want you to have a relationship with Romans chapter 5. I want Romans chapter 5 to be what gets you out of bed, what brings you into this church, what causes you to long to worship God. I want your heart. I want your emotion. It's not just me. We're a Reformed Presbyterian congregation. We have a long history, a long tradition of preaching like this of a, a, a philosophy of ministry, a philosophy of the Christian life, like this, uh, probably the probably the greatest uh, greatest of these Reformed Christians who think this way is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, maybe the greatest mind that the that the American nation has ever produced, not just the Christian one, the American nation. One of the one of the one of the founding presidents of Yale University, he spoke a lot about the affection. Awful. The reason for this is because he was ministering during the first Great Awakening. In fact, a lot of people actually credit him for starting the thing. Now, during the Great Awakening, affections were on the, the affections, love, were on the forefront of people's minds. You had people showing really excessive, excessive demonstrations of their affections. They would fall down and we had people actually, when the, the, the fear of God and the fear of the law was preached, people would literally like jump out of windows uh, even some of Jonathan Edwards' famous, he sees these things like, "Well, this is, well, this is kind of crazy," but notice, listen to what he says about the affections and their place in the Christian life. Even though they have, even though there are certainly some dangers, he says, "If a man has no affections, then it proves certainly that he has no true religion." To put that another way, if your affections are never are never given rise by the proclamation that Christ is the all-sufficient Savior of sinners, then there is no proof, there is no evidence that you possess Christ and that you possess true religion. But on the other hand, he also says this, a man having much affection does not prove that he has any true religion. To put it in another way, to really summarize the entire idea of his book, Religious Affections, Edwards is saying that even though affections are inseparable from the Christian life, if all a man has are his affections, then there is no reason to believe that he is a Christian at all. And I believe that this is at the heart of what Jesus is trying to get at. What he is warning us of. Simply because someone has an emotional experience upon hearing of Christ, that does not mean that they have truly received Christ. And I have seen this play out in my life over and over and over again. When I was young, as a member of the youth ministry, when I used to work in youth ministry back in my, my Baptist days, we would go every summer to these church camps. I was either a chaperone or I was actually partaking in it as a youth myself and it never failed you spend there for oh, the better part of a week sitting under the, the the day in the day out preaching of the word and usually not by you know you know some guy that doesn't know what he's doing but somebody who's very good at it somebody who's a very very good preacher and you're just in it in it in it, in it, in it and then you come back and you do you feel like you're you're changed all of a sudden your your parents aren't having to drag you to church anymore You're actually kind of enjoying it a little bit. You're not sitting there just, when you're singing the songs, you're not sitting there just kind of muttering them. You're actually singing with with heart and with feeling. You're endeavoring to new obedience. I, I call this church camp syndrome. And unfortunately, it is a temporary syndrome. It is a temporary disease. Because what ends up happening for many I would count myself very often in this category. Slowly but surely, we would begin to fall away. Attendance would become more challenging. would become less enjoyable. Then it would become less frequent. Our lives would become less Christ-like. And then the next thing you know, it was as if nothing had ever happened in the first place. Everything was back to life as usual. But not everyone is like that, are they? There are many people who go to those church camps. and They come back different. People, They persevere. Yeah, sure, they might come off of the, the the emotional high of it. But nonetheless, they still persist. Actually, Joe Steele, who preached my invocation, he became a Christian at a vacation in Bible school. I think I can't remember how old he was. I mean, 10 years old or something like that. Uh, coming out of Mormonism. He was a different person. Why is it? What is the difference between those who persist in the faith and those who fade back into their previous lives? What is this deep soil that that their faith has been laid its roots in? The answer is this. Their faith is rooted not merely in their joy, but in their knowledge of God, their knowledge, the gospel, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is the heart meeting the mind. It is the affections being drawn up by true doctrine and true religion. You see, this is very important. Our faith is not meant to look toward a particular feeling or a warm and fuzzy thing. Our faith is designed and given to us that we might look to a person, Jesus Christ, and what he has finally accomplished on our behalf. See, my feelings are up and down, up and down. My, my feelings, if you were to draw it out on a graph it would be a like a roller coaster with loops and highs and lows. But you know what is not changing? The fact that when Jesus breathed his last and said, it is finished, it is still finished. It has been finished for 2,000 years now. That does not change. That is solid. That is steady. And that is what should be giving our affections rise, causing us to love more, uh, to be gracious and to be more merciful. Our faith is designed to look at the person and work of Jesus Christ, being obedient when we were disobedient. He's been the substitute for us. He was a substitute of our penalty, bearing in his body and soul God's wrath for our sin. I can't change that. Thank God. I cannot change that. Let's look at Jesus as an example of this. See, our emotions, our affections, think of them as being kind of like a a motor that drives Christian doing. But let's imagine for a second that the only thing that drove the doing of Christ, the obedience of Christ, let's imagine for a second that that was purely his emotions, purely his affections. What would that mean for us today? He delighted to be obedient. He delighted to do the word, to do the law of God, to be obedient to it, to be righteous. It was a good thing a delight to him, delight to his soul. But in the garden of Gethsemane, as he's staring down the barrel of God's wrath, knowing what is going to await him the next day, not just the beatings, the lashings, not just the nail piercing, not just the crucifixion, the suffocation of it all, the wrath of God. When Jesus cries out my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about that for a second. This is the son of God who had eternal communion with God, who in that, however long it was for that moment, he is the most sinful creature to ever set foot on this earth and his father cannot even look upon him. He's not just on the cross, he is in hell. And in the garden of Gethsemane, he is looking down that barrel. And what does he do? He sweats blood. And he begs his father, if there is another way, let this cup pass from me. Let's imagine for a second that Jesus is governed by his emotions. Where are we? We are still lost. We have no reconciliation. We have no redemption. We are still in our sins and stand before a holy God as being wicked in his sight, And he will spew us from his mouth. Thank God that Christ was not governed by his emotions. What was he governed by? He rested in the will of God and purchased our pardon by his blood. You see, when we feel good about ourselves, the eyes of our faith leave. It can leave his cross and come up on ourselves. And that works fine for a while, so long as we're feeling good. What happens when we hit one of those lows in our emotional life? When we fall back into some kind of sin that maybe we thought we had some victory over. Now we're right back into it. What happens to it? It runs us off into a ditch. A great illustration of this is the apostle Peter himself when he's walking on the water. If you read that story, read it very carefully. And look at the eyes. When he's walking on the water, miraculously, where are his eyes? They're upon Christ. He sees Christ walking and he walks. But the second he takes his eyes off Jesus and he places them on his own feet, he places them on his own doing, what does he begin to do? He begins to sink. Your emotion will shipwreck your faith if that is what your faith is founded upon. But if it is founded upon Christ, his unchanging, unrelenting obedience on your behalf, that is solid ground that will not fail you. What happens after Peter sinks into the water? Jesus comes to him and he rescues him. If you are a Christian, you are never, as we just sung, you are never without help. You are never without someone on your side. Coming to the rescue. But in order for that to happen. He must bring the attention. Back to himself. And back to his. faults. When it comes to. Us. Our eyes are. not. Uh, when it comes to us. God's eyes are not upon us. Thank God. When God looks at me. He sees Jesus. That is true of God. Shouldn't it be true of us as well? Shouldn't our eyes always be upon Christ? Shouldn't we be hoping and praying that God does not look at me, he doesn't see a sinner, he instead sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ? I was teaching school, this is a few years ago, speaking about this idea that God doesn't see Nick Robison, he doesn't see you, He he sees Jesus and how there's, how that's really where Christian hope comes from. Heaven forbid he sees me. And as I'm teaching this class, a young lady speaks up and says, When God, when I stand before God, I'm going to stand there as, as, a, as a strong and independent woman. And I said, probably a little too quickly, I said, Ma'am, if you stand before God as a strong and independent woman, you will go to hell. If I stand before God, strong and independent man, a preacher, a husband, a father, I will go to hell. When God looks upon us, may he see the work of his Son, Jesus Christ. So do you see why theology is important? Why doctrine is important? Why seeking out doctrinal preaching? Why opening up your Bible is important? And learning about God. Not, not you, not instructions, but learning about God. While cracking a book that is about God, that is about doctrine why that is so important for us to do. And there is no doctrine in all of Scripture that is more important than the doctrine of Jesus Christ. I quoted this last week, but I'm going to quote it again because it's that good, from Martin Luther, The highest of all God's commands and doctrines is that we uh, ever hold up before our eyes the image of His dear Son. He must daily be to our hearts the perfect mirror in which we behold how much God loves us and how well He has grandly cared for us and that He gave His dear Son for us. Never let this mirror and throne of grace be torn from before your eyes. Let the doctrine of Christ always be before us. May the cross of Christ ever be before us. Because here's the thing. The world is always going to be trying to tear it away from you. And our text today is one thing in particular. Persecution, trial, tribulations, suffering. So I want to close today by us looking at what Jesus says about this suffering, about this persecution, he says that it is not a maybe or an if. It's a certainty. The sureness of suffering. Notice that the persecution that he describes as first being like the sun that scorches out the shallow faith. I like this illustration. Sun, light. From it, you see it reveals things. What is it that the son of persecution reveals? It reveals who is good soil and who is rocky soil. It acts as a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. It reveals what is the visible church from the invisible, who is the Christian and who is the pretend Christian. The second thing that I want you to notice is the certainty that Jesus places on that suffering. He doesn't say if tribulations and persecutions comes. He says when. Tribulations, and persecutions. Now I just want to say something about that. Real quick. That really worries. me. That worries me a whole lot. When persecutions, when something is, not that I'm necessarily doing me wrong. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want my life threatened. I, I certainly don't want my family's life to be to be threatened. But what worries me about it is, how do I know? that I'm not the Rockies. I mean, sure, here in America, there's a form of persecution, but no one's threatened to lock my head off. No one's threatened the life of my wife my kids. No one's threatened to throw me in prison to take away my income or livelihood or anything like that. It worries me because how do I know that when I'm in such a situation that the sun won't shine upon me scorch out my faith. How do I know that I will hold fast to my confession? And I think when I ask this question, I think maybe I'm asking the wrong question. Maybe that's not the question I should be asking. In Romans chapter 8, we have a group of so-called Christians, prosperity gospel, who say, like they, they love the verse um they love the verse in Romans chapter 8 verse 26 where it says God is will work all working God is working all things together for our good well they kind of misinterpret it to make it more like he's working all things together for our comfort that's not what Romans 8 is saying in fact Romans 8 seems to be very certain of one thing that the, the Christians there in Rome are going to suffer that they are going to be persecuted that it's, it's going to happen and so, where does he shine the hope? The, where does he shine the light of hope into their lives? There in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, groanings too deep for words. Jesus says something very similar in Luke chapter 12. Where he says, do not be anxious about what you are to say when you undergo persecution. When you're dragged in front of synagogues and, and, and trials, when your faith has been on trial, don't be anxious about what you're going to say. But in that moment, the moment of your persecution, the Holy Spirit himself will teach you. You see, when we ask the question, what would I do in that situation? What we really should be asking what has God promised to do in that situation? What has God, our covenant-keeping God, promised that he will do in that situation? Because Paul, in Romans moment, Jesus, Luke 12, just said that in those moments, he will provide. He will give his spirit. So don't ask, what would I do? Ask, what has God promised to do? And then ask yourself, I feel logical is God faithful? Is your God faith? How you answer that question reveals the depth of your soil reveals how deep it goes, reveals whether or not you just purely have emotions, purely have affections? Or are you grounded in the knowledge that the saying is true and worthy of full acceptance, that Christ has come to save sinners, not just save them, to help them, to provide for them, to protect them, even in the midst of persecution. Take a second, forget about yourself, and think upon Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word is life. Father, we'd ask that that life might take root in our hearts. That we might grow in our love for you, our hatred, for sin, that we might seek to put it to death anew every single day. Father, we pray that we would do this as we are driven along by the sure and certain knowledge that in Christ Jesus, we are safe. So, Father, please give us this blessing for the sake of your son, for the sake of your church